Chapter 30 The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer, and Chief for the Crow Nation of Indians Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. I stayed but five days in St. Louis, which time I devoted to a hasty visit among my friends. I entered into service with Mr. Sublet and Vasquez to return to the mountains and trade with any tribes I might find on the headwaters of the Platte and Arkansas rivers. This country embraces the hunting grounds of the Cheyennes, the Arapahoes, the Sioux, and the Eatons. All preliminaries being arranged, which are of no interest to the reader, I bade my friends once more adieu, and stepping on board a steamboat bound up the Missouri, we were soon breasting its broad and turbid current. We spent the fourth on board, amid much noise, revelry, and drunken patriotism. We were landed in safety at Independence, where we received our wagons, cattle, etc., with which to convey the immense stock of goods I had brought through the Indian country. We were very successful in escaping accident in our progress over the plains, until we reached the ridge which passes between the Arkansas and Platte rivers. While ascending this ridge, accompanied with Mr. Vasquez, I was sunstruck. We were at that time twenty miles from water. I was burning with thirst. The heat was intolerable, and hostile Indians were before us. After incredible suffering, we reached the river bank and crossed the stream to an island where I'd lay me down to die. All our medicines were in the wagons and two days' journey in our rear. My fatigue and suffering had thrown me into a fever. I became delirious and grew rapidly worse. I requested my companion to return to the wagons and procure me some medicine, but he refused to leave me, lest I might die in his absence. I said to him, If you stay by me, I shall certainly die, for you cannot relieve me. But if you go, and nature holds out till you return, there is some chance of my gaining relief. Go, I added, and hasten your return. He left me at my entreaties, but filled all our vessels with water before he started. I speedily fell asleep, and I know not how long I remained unconscious. When I at length awoke, I drank an inordinate quantity, which caused me to perspire copiously. This relieved me, and my recovery commenced from that moment although I still suffered from a severe headache. The third day of my friend's absence, I could walk about a little, and on the fourth day at noon, I kept a good lookout in the direction I expected succor. 
Suddenly, I saw a head appear, and another, and then another, until four showed themselves. They are Indians, I said to myself. But if there are only four, I stand a passable chance with them. So let them come on. I saw they had discovered me, so I arose and showed myself. With joyous shouts, they flew toward me. It was my companion with three others who had come either to bury me or to assist me to the wagons. Their joy on beholding me so miraculously restored was unbounded, while my delight at seeing them was almost as great. We remained on the island that night, and the following morning started for the wagons, which we found in two days. In going for assistance, my friend had a narrow escape. He came suddenly upon a party of Pawnees, and one made a rush for his horse. He discharged his rifle hastily and missed his mark. He then had to trust to his horse's heels, but as he was jaded, he did not make very good speed. The Indians were on foot and gave close chase, but when they saw his rifle reloaded, they fell back to a wider distance and plied him with arrows until he was out of reach. I was placed in a wagon and attended on as far as our circumstances would admit, until I recovered my accustomed health. We stayed one night at Burt's Fort on the Arkansas, and then moved on to our destination on the South Fork of the Platte. Here, we erected suitable buildings within the fort for our proposed trading, and among others, a barn, which we proceeded to fill with hay for the coming winter. While staying at the fort, a man inquired of Sublet his reason for bringing up such a rascally fellow as I to prompt the Indians into rising and massacring all the whites. Murray, said Sublet, for that was the man's name. It is unsafe for you to express such sentiments in relation to Beckworth. Should they reach his ears, he would surely make you rue it. I have heard these foul aspirations upon his character before, and I am in a position to know that they are all unfounded. Had I the least suspicion of his integrity, I should be the last man to take him in my employ. This conversation was reported to me at some distance from the fort, where Murray was perfectly safe. But these foul reports annoyed me exceedingly. They were like stabs in the dark, for no one ever accused me to my face of such misdeeds. After having placed things to rights, we were dining together within the fort when Mr. Sublet rose and said, Traders and clerks, you have come here to the mountains to work for me, and I expect every man to do his best. If I am prospered, I will do well by all of you. I desire a regular system established in my business out here, that my interests may be placed upon a secure footing. I am now going to deliver the key of my entire stock of goods to one man among you, 
in whom I have implicit confidence and whose long experience and intimate acquaintance with the Indian character preeminently entitle him to the trust. This man will have full command of the fort and full charge of its affairs. I wish you to receive him as a representative of myself, and whatever orders you receive from him, obey them cheerfully and to the very letter. All present promised ready acquiescence to the wishes of our chief. He then delivered the key to me, saying, Beckworth, I place this trust in your keeping, believing you to be as morally worthy of the confidence I repose in you, as you are practically qualified to advance my interests. I abandon my affairs to your keeping. Do your best, and I shall be satisfied. I was so entirely unprepared for this distinguished mark of confidence that for a moment I was unable to reply. After a momentary irresolution, I said, Mr. Sublet, you have other men present who are better able to discharge this trust. I thank you for the flattering preference, but I beg to be excused from assuming the responsibility. I engaged you, he answered, to serve me in this capacity, and I wish you to accept the charge. In that case, I said, I will do my best to promote your interest. Shortly after, he called me apart and said, Beckworth, I am deeply in debt. I have been losing for a long time. If you can replace me in one year, you shall be substantially rewarded, and I shall feel sincerely grateful for your service. How much do you owe? I inquired. Over $17,000. Well, said I, if the men cooperate with me and carry out my instructions, I feel confident of working you straight. I forthwith set about establishing subposts in various places with the Sioux, Arapaho, Eatons, and Cheyennes, and selected the best man at hand to attend them. I placed one at the mouth of Crow Creek, which I called my post, but left a man in charge of it, as I was at present fully occupied in traveling from one post to another. We had not, as yet, found any customers, but as we were in the Cheyenne country, I knew some of the nation could not be very far off. I sent three different messengers in search of them to invite them to trade, but they all returned without having discovered the whereabouts of the Indians. Tired of these failures, I took a man with me and started in the direction of the Laramie Mountain. While ascending the mount, I cast my eyes in the directions of a valley and discovered buffalo running in small groups which was sufficient evidence that they had been chased recently by Indians. We went no farther, but encamped there, and at nightfall we saw fires. The next morning a dense smoke hung like a cloud over the village of the Cheyennes. We ate a hasty meal, 
and started to pay them a visit. As we approached the village, we saw William Bent, an interpreter, entering before us. He visited the chief's lodge. We followed him in and seated ourselves near him. He looked aghast and addressed me. My God, Beckworth, how dare you come among the Cheyennes? Don't you know that they will kill you if they discover you? I replied that I thought not. He had come on the same errand as ourselves, namely to induce a portion of the village to remove to the Platte, as buffalo were abundant in that region. After a conversation was held between Bent and a chief, the latter inquired of Bent who we were. He informed him that we were left hands, Sublet's men. What do they want here? he asked. They come for the same purpose that I have, Bent answered, to have you move on to the Platte. Bent then inquired of me what account I wished to give of myself, as he would interpret for me. But, preferring to interpret for myself, I asked if there was a crow among them that I could speak to. At the word crow, they all started, and every eye was riveted upon me. One stepped forward and said, I am a crow. You a crow? Yes. How long have you been away from them? Twenty winters. Bent was in the greatest perplexity. You are not surely going to tell them who you are, Jim. If you do, you'll cost your friends nothing for your funeral. This apprehension on the part of Bent proved to me that, although he had lived long among the Indians, he had still much to learn of their real character. I therefore requested him to quiet his fears and bide the result. Turning to the crow, I then said, Tell the Cheyennes that I have fought them many winters, that I have killed so many of their people that I am buried with their scalps. I have taken a host of their women and children prisoners. I have ridden their horses until their backs were sore. I have eaten their fat buffalo until I was full. I have eaten their cherries and the other fruits of their land until I could eat no more. I have killed a great crow chief and am obliged to run away or be killed by them. I have come to the Cheyennes, who are the bravest people in the mountains, as I do not wish to be killed by any of the inferior tribes. I have come here to be killed by the Cheyennes, cut up and thrown out for their dogs to eat, so that they may say that they have killed a great crow chief. He interpreted this unreserved declaration faithfully to the chief, and I observed Bent ready to fall from his seat at what he deemed my foolhardy audacity. You are certainly bereft of your senses, he remarked. The Indians will make sausage meat of you. Old Bark, the patriarch of the Cheyennes, rose and said, Warrior, we have seen you before. We know you. 
We knew you when you came in. Now we know you well. We know you are a great brave. You say you have killed many of our warriors. We know you do not lie. We like a great brave, and we will not kill you. You shall live. I answered, If you will not kill me, I will live with you. If you become poor, like some of the other tribes, and you need warriors to help you against your enemies, my arm is strong, and perhaps I will assist you to overcome them. But I will not at this time give you my word that I will do so. If you do not kill me, I am going to trade with you for many moons. I will trade with you fairly. I will not cheat you, as some of the traders have cheated you. I have a great many goods over on the plat, such as you want, more than would fill many of your lodges. They are new and look well. But mind you, you must trade fairly with me. I have heard that you sometimes treat your traders badly, that you take away their goods and whip them, and make them run out of your country to save their lives. Your people must never serve me in that manner. They must pay me for all they get. And if anyone strikes me, I shall kill him, and thereby show you that I am brave. If anyone should strike me, and I should not kill him, you would call me a woman and say I was no brave. They then asked me, through the crow interpreter, if I was in such and such a battle between their nation and the crows, all of which questions I answered truthfully. Do you remember that in such a battle we lost such a brave, describing him? Yes. Who killed him? I did. Or if I did not kill him, I would tell them the name of the crow who did. Did he fight well? Yes, he fought well. He died like a brave man then, they would ejaculate. Were you in such a battle? asked another. Yes. Did you see such a warrior fall? Yes. Did he fight strong like a brave? No, he did not fight well. Ah! He was no brave. He deserved to be killed. In battle, every warrior has his personal device painted on his shield, chosen according to his fancy. My armorial bearing was a crescent with a green bird between the horns and a star on each side the field. I described my novel device, and there was a great movement among them, for most of them distinctly recollected that shield and I saw myself rising in their estimation. Their brave hearts rejoiced to have a true warrior before them, for they esteemed me as brave as themselves. One of their great chiefs, named the Bobtail Horse, arose and asked me if I remembered the battle on Pole Creek. I replied that I did. You killed me there he said, but I did not die. And he pointed out two scars upon his chest, just below the lower rib, where the balls from my gun entered 
and which must have killed anybody but an Indian. Where did I hit you? he asked. Aha, said I, you missed me. Old Bark then said, Warrior, you killed me once too. Look here. And he withdrew the hair from his right temple, and I saw that his cheek had been badly torn, and his ear was entirely missing. But, he added, I did not die. You fought bravely that day. Had I gone among the Pawnees, the Sioux, or many other tribes, and held this talk, I should have been hewn to pieces in a moment. But the Cheyennes were great braves themselves, and admired the quality in others, the Crows being their only equals. While I sat talking thus, one of my men entered the village bearing two ten-gallon kegs of whiskey. He requested me to take one and sell it out, while he went to the other end of the village, where the Sioux were in camp, to sell the other. I had hitherto always opposed the sale of liquor to the Indians, and during my chieftainship of the Crows, not one drop had ever been brought into the village. But now I was restrained by no such moral obligation. I was a mere trader, hazarding my life among the savages to make money for my employers. The sale of liquor is one of the most profitable branches of a trader's business, and since the appetite for the vile potion had already been created, my personal influence in the matter was very slight. I was no lawgiver. I was no longer in a position to prohibit the introduction of the white man's firewater. If I had refused to sell it to the Indians, plenty more traders would have furnished it to them and my conscientious scruples would benefit the Indians none, and would deprive my embarrassed employer of a very considerable source of profit. Running these things hurriedly over in my own mind, I took the proffered keg and dealt it all out within two hours. Certainly the rate of profit was high enough. If a man wants a good price for the sale of his soul to his satanic majesty, let him engage in the liquor business among the nations of the Rocky Mountains. Our liquor was a choice article. One pint of alcohol costing, I suppose, six cents was manufactured into five times the quantity of whiskey, and this was retailed to our insatiate customers at the rate of one pint for each buffalo robe. If the robe was an extra fine one, I might possibly open my heart and give two pints. But I felt no particular inducement to liberality in my dealings, for I thought the greatest kindness I could show my customers was to withhold the commodity entirely. Before I had got through with my keg, I had a row with an Indian, which cost him his life on the spot. While I was busy in attending the tap, a tall Sioux warrior came into my establishment, already the worse for liquor, which he had obtained elsewhere. He made some formidable strides round and near me, and then inquired for the crow. I was pointed out to him, and pot valiant, he swaggered up to me, 
You are a crow, he exclaimed. Yes. You are a great crow brave. Yes. You have killed a host of Sioux. No, I have killed a host of Cheyennes, but I have only killed fourteen Sioux with my own hand. Look at me, said he, with drunken gasconade. My arm is strong. I am the greatest brave in the Sioux Nation. Now come out, and I will kill you. No, I said. I did not come here to be killed or to kill. I came here to trade. I could kill you as easily as I could kill a squaw, but you know that you have a host of warriors here while I am alone. They would kill me after I had killed you. But if I should come in sight of your village with twenty of my crow warriors, you would all run and leave your lodges, women and children. Go away. I want nothing to do with you. Your tongue is strong, but you are no brave. I had told the Cheyennes but a few moments previously that I had been among all the nations in the country, and that it had ever been my invariable rule when struck by a red man to kill him. I was determined to prove the truth of my declaration in this instance. I had my battle axe hanging from my wrist, and I was ready at a moment's warning. The Sioux continued his abuse of me in his own tongue, which I paid no attention to, for I supposed that, like his white brethren, he might utter a great deal of provocation in his cups, and straightway repent it when he became sober. Finally, he became so importunate that I saw it was time to take an active part. I said, You want to kill me, eh? I would fight with you, only I know I should be killed by the Sioux afterwards, and I should have you for my waiter in the spirit land. I would rather kill a good brave if I kill any. This was a very opprobrious speech, for it is their faith that when an Indian is slain, who has previously slain a foe, the first killed warrior becomes waiter in the spirit land to the one who had laid him low. Indeed, it was more than he could endure. He jerked off the cloth that was fastened round his hips and struck me in the face with it. I grasped my battle axe, but the blow I aimed was arrested by a lodge pole which impeded over his head and saved him from immediate death. The lodge pole was nearly severed with the blow. I raised my arm again, but it was restrained by the Cheyennes, who had been sitting round with their heads declined during the Sioux's previous abuse. The Sioux chief, Bull Bear, was standing near and was acquainted with the whole particulars of the difficulty. He advanced and chopped his warrior down and hacked him to pieces after he fell. Ah, grunted he, as coolly as possible. You ought to have been killed long ago, you bad Indian. This demonstration on my part had a good effect. The Indians examined the cut inflicted by the edge of my axe on the lodgepole and declared mine a strong arm. They saw I was in earnest, and would do what I had threatened, and except in one single instance, I had no farther trouble. 
Influenced by my persuasions, 200 lodges of the Cheyenne started for the Platte, Bent and myself accompanying them. On our way thither, we met one of my wagons, loaded with goods, on its way to the North Fork of the Platte. There was a 40-gallon cask of whiskey among its contents, and as the Indians insisted on having it opened, I brought it out of the wagon and broached it. Bent begged me not to touch it, but to wait till we reached the fort. I was there for the purpose of making money, and when a chance offered, it was my duty to make the most of it. On that, he left me and went to the fort. I commenced dealing it out, and before it was half gone, I had realized sixteen horses in over two hundred robes. While I was busy in my traffic, the Indians brought in four trappers whom they had chanced to pick up. The poor fellows appeared half frightened to death, not knowing what their fate would be. I addressed them in English. How are you, boys? Where are you bound? These Indians must decide that, they replied. Are they good Indians? Yes, I replied. They will not harm you. They informed me that they were returning from the mountains with twelve packs of beaver, and while encamped one night, the crows had stolen their horses. They had cached their peltry and now wanted to buy more horses to carry it to some fort. I made a bargain with them for their beaver, and taking some horses, went with them myself to their late encampment, for I could not trust them alone for fear that they would take their skins to some other post. We disinterred the peltry, and with it reached the fort without accident. The trappers stayed with us two or three weeks, and then, purchasing their outfit and horses, they again started for the mountains. We had a prosperous fall in winter trade, and accumulated more peltry than our wagons can transport, and we had to build boats to convey it to St. Louis. At the settlement of accounts, it was found that we had cleared sufficient to pay Mr. Sublet's debts, and enough over to buy a handsome stock of goods for the next season's trade. I spent the summer at the fort while Sublet and Fitzpatrick went on with the peltry to St. Louis. I had but little to do as the Indians had removed to their summer retreats, and I spent my time very agreeably with the few men remaining behind in hunting buffalo for our own use. About the last of August, our goods arrived, and we set ourselves to work again at business. I put up at the North Fork of the Platte and had a busy fall in winter trade, making many very profitable bargains for the company. The Cheyennes thought me the best trader that ever visited them and would not allow any other company to traffic with their villages. This sorely vexed my rival traders, and once or twice I had my life attempted in consequence. When others came to ask permission to open a trading post, the Cheyennes would say, No, we do all our trading with the Crow. He will not cheat us. His whiskey is strong. 
when I found I had obtained the confidence of the nation. I told the Cheyennes that if they allowed other traders to come in, I should leave them, and they would be cheated by those who sold poor whiskey. That would not make them marry half so soon as mine. This may be considered selfish, but I knew that our company was keenly competed with by three or four rival companies, and that the same representations that I used to keep the trade in my hands were freely urged by others to attract it from me. There was also a farther inducement for the Cheyennes to do their business with me, which was founded upon their respect for me as a great brave who had killed a number of their countrymen. Whether there was diplomatic finesse enough in their minds to reflect that, while I was harmlessly engaged with them, I could not be fighting in the bands of their enemies, and adding to my present number of scalps, I could not pretend to say. End of chapter 30